CD7. After the stampede, the artist Three Solid Frogs got to his feet, retrieved his brush from his nostril, pulled his easel out of a tree, and tried to think placid thoughts. The garden was not what it had been. The willow tree was bent. The pagoda had been demolished by an out-of-control wrestler who had eaten the roof. The doves had flown, the little bridge had been broken, his model, the concubine Jade Fan, had run off crying after she'd managed to scramble out of the ornamental pond, and someone had stolen his straw hat. Three solid frogs adjusted what remained of his dress and endeavoured to compose himself. The plate with his sketch on had been smashed, of course. He pulled another one out of his bag and reached for his palette. There was a huge footprint in the middle of it. He wanted to cry. He'd had such a good feeling about this picture, he just knew it would be one that people would remember for a long time. And the colours, did anyone understand how much vermilion cost these days? He pulled himself together. So there was only blue left. Well, he'd show them. He tried to ignore the devastation in front of him and concentrated on the picture in his mind. Let me see now, he thought. Jade Fan being pursued over a bridge by a man waving his arms and screaming, get out of the way, followed by a man with prod, three guards, five laundrymen and a wrestler unable to stop. He had to simplify it a bit, of course. The pursuers rounded a corner, except for the wrestler who wasn't built for such a difficult manoeuvre. Where did he go? They were in a courtyard. There were pigsties on one side and middens on the other. And in the middle of the courtyard, a pointy hat. One of the guards reached out and grabbed a colleague's arm before the man stepped forward. Steady now, he said. It's just a hat. So where's the rest of him? He couldn't have just disappeared into... They backed away. You heard about him too? They said he blew a hole in the wall just by waving his hands. That's nothing. I heard he appeared on an invisible dragon up in the mountains. What shall we tell Lord Hong? I don't want to be blown to pieces. I don't want to tell Lord Hong we lost him. We're in enough trouble already, and I've only just paid for this helmet. Well, we could take the hat. That'd be evidence. Right. You pick it up. Me? You pick it up. It might be surrounded by terrible spells. Oh, really? So it's all right for me to touch it? Thank you. Get one of them to pick it up. The laundry men backed away. The hung hung habit of obedience evaporating like morning dew. The soldiers weren't the only ones to have heard rumours. Not us. Got a rush order for socks. The guard turned. A peasant was stumbling out of one of the pigsties, carrying a sack, his face covered in a big straw hat. Hey, you! The man dropped to his knees and banged his head on the ground. Don't kill me. The guards exchanged a glance. We ain't gonna kill you, said one of them. We just want you to try and pick up that hat over there. What hat, oh mighty warrior? That hat there, right now. The man crawled crabwise across the cobbles. This hat, oh great lord? Yes. The man's fingers crept over the stones and prodded the hat's ragged brim. Then he screamed. Your wife is a big hippo. My face is melting. My face is melting. Rincewind waited until the sounds of fleeing sandals had quite faded. Then he stood up, dusted off his hat, and put it in the sack. That had gone a lot better than he'd expected. So there was another valuable thing to know about the Empire. No one looked at peasants. It must be the clothes and the hat. No one but the common people dressed like that, so anyone dressed like that must be a common person. It was the advertising principle of a wizard's hat but in reverse. You were careful and polite around people in a pointy hat in case they took a very physical offence. Whereas someone in a big straw hat was a suitable target for, hey, you, and a... It was at exactly this point that someone behind him shouted, hey, you, and hit Rincewind across the shoulders with a stick. The irate face of a servant appeared in front of him. The man waved a finger in front of Rincewind's nose. You are late. You are a bad man. Get inside right now. Uh, the stick hit Rincewind again. The servant pointed at a distant doorway. Insolence. Shame. Go to work. Rincewind's brain prepared the words, Oh, so we think we're clever, San, just because we've got a big stick, do we? Well, I happen to be a great wizard, and you know what you can do with your big stick. 
Somewhere between the brain and his mouth, they became, Yes, sir, right away. The horde were left alone. Well, gentlemen, we did it, said Mr. Savaloy eventually. You have the world on a plate. All the treasure we want, said Truckle. That's right. Let's not hang around then, said Truckle. Let's get some sacks. There's no point, said Mr. Savaloy. You'd only be stealing from yourselves. This is an empire. You don't just shove it in a bag and divvy it up at the next campfire. How about the ravishing? Mr. Savaloy sighed. There are, I understand, three hundred concubines in the Imperial Harem. I'm sure they will be very pleased to see you, although matters will be improved if you take your boots off. The old men wore the puzzled look such as might be worn by fish trying to understand the concept of the bicycle. We ought to take just small stuff, said Boy Willie at last. Rubies and emeralds for preference. And chuck a match on the place as we go out, said Vincent. These paper walls and all this lacquered wood should go up a treat. No, 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 said Mr Savaloy. The vases in this room alone are priceless. Nah, too big to carry, can't get them on a horse. But I've shown you civilization, said Mr Savaloy. Yeah, it's all right to visit, ain't that so, Cohen? Cohen was hunched down in the throne, glaring at the far wall. What's that? I'm saying we take everything we can carry and head off back home, right? Home? Eh, uh, yeah. That was the plan, yeah? Cohen didn't look at Mr Savaloy's face. Yeah, the plan, he said. It's a good plan, said Truckle. It's a great idea. You move in as boss, fine. Great scam, saves trouble. None of that fiddling with locks and things, so we'll all be off home, OK? With all the treasure we can carry. What for? said Cohen. What for? It's treasure. Cohen seemed to reach a decision. What did you spend your last haul on, Truckle? You said you got three sacks of golden gems from that haunted castle. Truckle looked puzzled, as if Cohen had asked what purple smelled like. Spend it on? I don't know. You know how it is. What's it matter what you spend it on? It's loot. Anyway, what do you spend yours on? Cohen sighed. Truckle gaped at him. You're not thinking of really staying here. He glared at Mr. Savaloy. Have you two been cooking up something? Cohen drummed his fingers on the arm of the throne. You said go home, he said. Where to? Well, wherever. And Hamish there? What? What? I mean, he's 105, right? Time to settle down, maybe? What? Settle down? Down, said Truckle. You tried it once. Stole a farm and said you was going to raise pigs. Gave it up after, what was it, three hours? What's he saying? What's he saying? He said it's time you settled down, Hamish. Bugger that! The kitchens were in uproar. Half the court had ended up there, in most cases for the first time. The place was as crowded as a street market, through which the servants tried to go about their business as best they could. The fact that one of them seemed a little unclear as to what his business actually consisted of was quite unnoticed in the turmoil. Did you smell him? said Lady Two Streams. The stink! Like a hot day in a pig yard, said Lady Peach Petal. I'm pleased to say I have never experienced that, said Lady Two Streams haughtily. Lady Jade Knight, who was rather younger than the other two, and who had been rather attracted to Cohen's smell of unwashed lion, said nothing. The head cook said, Just that. Big lumps. Why doesn't he just eat a cow while he's about it? You wait till you hear about this devil food called sausage, said the Lord Chamberlain. Big lumps. The cook was almost in tears. 
Where's the skill in big lumps of meat? Not even sauce? I'd rather die than simply heat up big lumps of meat. Ah, said the new Lord Chamberlain, I should think very carefully about that. The new emperor, may he have a bath for ten thousand years, tends to interpret that as a request. The babble of voices stopped. The cause of the sudden silence was one small sharp noise. It was a cork popping. Lord Hong had a Grand Vizier's talent for apparently turning up out of nowhere. His gaze swept the kitchens. It was certainly the only housework he had ever done. He stepped forward. He'd taken a small black bottle from out of the sleeve of his robe. Bring me the meat, he said. The sauce will take care of itself. The assembled people watched with horrified interest. Poison was all part of the Hung Hung Yi's court etiquette, but people generally did it while hidden from sight somewhere, out of good manners. Is there anyone, said Lord Hong, who has anything they would like to say? His gaze was like a scythe. As it swung around the room, people wavered and hesitated and fell. Very well, said Lord Hong. I would rather die than see a barbarian on the imperial throne. Let him have his big lumps. Bring me the meat. There was a movement in the ground and the sound of shouting and the thump of a stick. A peasant scuttled forward, reluctantly wheeling a huge covered dish on a trolley. At the sight of Lord Hong, he pushed the trolley aside, flung himself forward and grovelled. I avert my gaze from your orchard in a favourable position. Damn, uh, countenance, O oh Lord. Lord Hong prodded the prone figure with his foot. It is good to see the arts of respect maintained, he observed. Remove the lid. The man got up, and still bowing and ducking, lifted the cover. Lord Hong upended the bottle and held it there until the last drop had hissed out. His audience was transfixed. And now let it be taken to the barbarians, he said. Certainly, your celestial ink brush, uh, uh, willow frond, um, uh, righteousness. Where are you from, peasant? Bespelagic, O oh Lord. Ah, I thought so. The big bamboo doors slid back. The new Lord Chamberlain stepped in, followed by a caravan of trolleys. Breakfast, O oh Lord, of a thousand years, he said. Big lumps of pig, big lumps of goat, big lumps of ox, and seven fried rice. One of the servants lifted the lid of a dish. But take my tip and don't go for this pork, he said. It's been poisoned. The Chamberlain spun around. Insolent pig, you will die for this. It's rinsewind, isn't it? said Cohen. Looks like Rincewind. Got my hat here somewhere, said Rincewind. Had to stuff it down my trousers. Poison, said Cohen. You sure? Well, OK, it was a black bottle and it had a skull and crossbones on it and when he tipped it out it smoked, said Rincewind, as Mr Savaloy helped him up. Was it anchovy essence? I don't think so. Poison, said Cohen. I hate poisoners. Just about the worst sort, poisoners. Creeping around, putting muck in a man's grub. He glared at the Chamberlain. Was it you? He looked at Rincewind and jerked a thumb towards the cowering Chamberlain. Was it him? Because if it was, he's going to get done to him what I did to the mad snake priests of Start. And this time I'll use both thumbs. No, said Rincewind. It was someone they called Lord Hong. But they all watched him do it. A little scream erupted from the Lord Chamberlain. He threw himself to the floor and was about to kiss Cohen's foot until he realised that this would have about the same effect as eating the pork. Mercy, O oh celestial being, we are all pawns in the hands of Lord Hong. What's so special about Lord Hong, then? He's uh, a fine man, the Chamberlain gibbered. I won't say a word against Lord Hong. I certainly don't believe it's true that he has spies everywhere. Long life to Lord Hong, that's what I say. He risked looking up and found the point of Cohen's sword just in front of his eyes. Yeah, but right now, who are you more frightened of? Me or this Lord Hong? Um, Lord Hong, 
Cohen raised an eyebrow. I'm impressed. Spies everywhere, eh? He looked around the huge room and his gaze came to rest on a very large vase. He sauntered over to it and raised the lid. You okay in there? Uh, yes, said a voice from the depths of the vase. Got everything you want? Spare notebook? Potty? Um, yes. Would you like, oh, let's say about 60 gallons of boiling water? Um, no. Would you rather die than betray Lord Hong? Um, can I have a moment to think about it, please? No problem. It takes a long time to heat the water in any case. As you were, then. He replaced the lid. One big mother, he said. Um, that's, um, that's one big river, Genghis, said Mr Savaloy. The guard rumbled into life. Just you watch this vase, and if it moves again, you do to it what I once did to the green necromancer of the night, all right? Don't know what it was you did, Lord, said the soldier. Cohen told him. One big river beamed. From inside the jar came the noise of someone trying not to be sick. Cohen strolled back to the throne. So, tell me a bit more about Lord Hong, then, he said. He's the Grand Vizier, said the Chamberlain. Cohen and Rincewind looked at one another. That's right, and everyone knows, said Rincewind, that Grand Viziers are always... Complete and utter bastards, said Cohen. Don't know why. Give them a turban with a point in the middle, and their moral wasp name just gets eaten away. I always kill them as soon as I meet them. Saves time later on. I thought there was something fishy about him as soon as I saw him, said Rincewind. Look, Cohen. That's Emperor Cohen to you, said Truckle. I've never trusted wizards, mister. Never trusted any man in a dress. Rincewind's all right, said Cohen. Thank you, said Rincewind. But a bloody useless wizard. I just happened to risk my neck to save you. Thank you so very much, said Rincewind. Look, some friends of mine are in the prison block. Could you... Emperor? Well, sort of, said Cohen. Temporary, said Truckle. Mm, technically, said Mr Savaloy. Does that mean you can get my friends somewhere safe? I think Lord Hong has murdered the old emperor and wants them to take the blame. I'm just hoping you won't believe they'll be hiding in the cells. Why in the cells? said Cohen. Because if I had the chance to get away from Lord Hong's cells, I would, said Rincewind fervently. No one in their right minds would go back inside if they thought they had a chance to get away. OK, said Cohen. Boy Willie, one big mother, go and round up some of your mates and bring those people here. Here, said Rincewind. I wanted them to be somewhere safe. Well... We're here, said Cohen. We can protect them. Who's going to protect you? Cohen ignored this. Lord Chamberlain, he said. I don't expect Lord Hong will be around, but uh, in the court was a guy with a nose like a badger, a fat bugger he was, with a pink hat, and a skinny woman with a face like a hat full of pins. That would be Lord Nine Mountains and Lady Two Streams, said the Lord Chamberlain. Uh, you are not angry with me, oh Lord? God bless you, no, said Cohen. In fact, mister, I'm so impressed I'm going to give you extra responsibilities. Lord? Food taster for a start. And now go and fetch their mother too. I don't like the look of them at all. Nine mountains and two streams were ushered in a few moments later. The merest glance from Cohen to the untouched food would have passed entirely unnoticed by those who weren't watching for it. Cohen nodded cheerfully at them. Ate it, he said. My lord, I had a large breakfast. I am entirely full, said Nine Mountains. That's a pity, said Cohen. One big mother, before you go off, just see Mr Nine Mountains over there and make some room in him so he can have another breakfast. The same goes for the lady too, if I don't hear chomping in the next five seconds. A good mouthful of everything, understand? With lots of sauce. One big river drew his sword. The two nobles stared fixedly at the glistening mounds. Looks good to me, said Cohen, conversationally. The way you're looking at it, anyone would think there was something wrong with it. Nine Mountains gingerly put a piece of pork into his mouth. Extremely good, he said indistinctly. Now, swallow, said Cohen. The mandarin gulped. 
Marvellous, he said. And now, if your excellency will excuse me, I... Don't rush off, said Cohen. We don't want you accidentally sticking your fingers down your throat or anything like that, do we? Nine Mountains hiccuped. Then he hiccuped again. Smoke appeared to be rising from the bottom of his robe. The horde dived for cover just as the explosion removed an area of floorboards, a circular part of the ceiling, and all of Lord Nine Mountains. A black hat with a ruby button on it spun around on the floor for a moment. "'That's just like me and pickled onions,' said Vincent. Lady Two Streams was standing with her eyes shut. "'Not hungry,' said Cohen. She nodded. Cohen leaned back. "'One big mother?' "'It's River.' Cohen, said Mr. Savaloy, as the guard lumbered forward. Take her with you and put her in one of the dungeons. See that she has plenty to eat, if you know what I mean. Yes, Excellency. And Mr. Chamberlain here can push off down to the kitchen again and tell the chef he's going to share what we eat this time, and he's going to eat it first. All right? Yes, indeed, Excellency. Call this living... Caleb burst out as the Lord Chamberlain scuttled away. This is being emperor, is it? Can't even trust the food. We'll probably be murdered in our beds. Can't see you being murdered in your bed, said Truckle. Yeah, cos you're never in it, said Cohen. He walked over to the big jar and gave it a kick. You getting all this? Yes, sir, said the jar. There was some laughter but it had an edge of nervousness. Mr. Savaloy realised that the Horde weren't used to this. If a true barbarian wanted to kill someone during a meal, he'd invite him in with all his henchmen, sit them down, get them drunk and sleepy, and then summon his own men from hiding places to massacre them instantly in a straightforward, no-nonsense and honourable manner. It was completely fair. The get-them-drunk-and-butcher-the-lot-of-them stratagem was the oldest trick in the book, or would have been if barbarians bothered with books. Anyone falling for it would be doing the world a favour by being slaughtered over the pudding. But at least you could trust the food. Barbarians didn't poison food. You never knew when you might be short of a mouthful yourself. Excuse me, Your Excellency, said Six Beneficent Winds, who had been hovering. I think Lord Truckle is right. Ah, uh, I know a little history. The correct method of succession is to wade to the throne through seas of blood. That is what Lord Hong is planning to do. You say? Seas of blood, right? Or over a mountain of skulls. That's an option, too. But, um, but I, I thought the imperial crown was handed down from father to son, said Mr. Savaloy. Well, yes, said Six Beneficent Winds. I suppose that could happen, in theory... You said once we were at the top of the pyramid, everyone would do what we said, said Cohen to Mr Savaloy. Truckle looked from one to the other. You two planned this, he said accusingly. This is what it's all been about, isn't it? All that learning to be civilised, and right at the start you just said it was going to be a really big theft. Eh? I thought we were just going to nick a load of stuff and push off. Loot and pillage, that's the way... Oh, loot and pillage, loot and pillage. I've had it up to here with loot and pillage, said Mr Savaloy. Is that all you can think of? Looting and pillaging? Well, there used to be ravishing too, said Vincent wistfully. I hate to tell you, but they've got a point, Teach, said Cohen. Fighting and looting, that's what we do. I ain't happy with all this bowing and scraping business. I ain't sure if I was cut out for civilization. Mr. Savaloy rolled his eyes. Even you, Cohen? You're all so... dim-witted, he snapped. I don't know why I bother. I mean, look at you. You know what you are. You're legends. The horde stepped back. No one had ever seen Teach lose his temper before. "'From legendum, which means something written down,' said Mr. Savaloy. "'Books, you know, reading and writing, "'which, incidentally, is as alien to you as the lost city of E.' "'Truckle's hand went up, a little nervously. "'Actually, 
I once discovered the lost city of E. Shut up! I'm saying... Ugh, what was I saying? Yes, you don't read, do you? You never learned to read. Then you've wasted half your life. You could have been accumulating pearls of wisdom instead of rather shoddy gems. It's just as well people read about you and don't meet you face to face because, gentlemen, you are a big disappointment. Rincewind watched, fascinated, waiting for Mr Savaloy to have his head cut off. But this didn't seem about to happen. He was possibly too angry to be beheaded. What have you actually done, gentlemen? And don't tell me about stolen jewels and demon lords. What have you done that's real? Truckle raised a hand again. Well, I once killed all four of the... Yes, 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 said Mr Savaloy. You killed this and you stole that and you defeated the giant man-eating avocados of somewhere else. But it's all... It's all... stuff. It's just wallpaper, gentlemen. It never changes anything. No one cares. Back in Ankh-Morpork, I've taught boys who think you are myths. That's what you've achieved. They don't believe you ever really existed. They think someone made you up. Your stories, gentlemen. And when you die, no one will know because they think you're already dead. He paused for breath and then continued more slowly. But here, here you could be real. You could stop playing at your lives. You could take this ancient and somewhat rotten empire back into the world. At least, he trailed off, that's what I'd hoped. I really thought that perhaps we might actually achieve something. He sat down. The horde stood staring at its various feet, or wheels. Um, can I say something? The warlords will all be against you, said Six Beneficent Winds. They're out there now with their armies. Normally they'd fight amongst themselves, but they'll all fight you. They'd rather have some poisoner like this Hong instead of me, said Cohen. But he's a bastard. Yes, but he's their bastard, you see. We could hold out here. This place has got thick walls, said Vincent. The one's not made of paper, that is. Don't think about that, said Truckle. Not a siege. Sieges are messy. I hate eating boots and rats. What? said Mad Hamish. He said we don't want a siege where we have to eat boots and rats, Hamish. Run out of legs, have we? How many soldiers have they got? said Cohen. I think six or seven hundred thousand, said the taxman. Excuse us, said Cohen, getting off the throne. I have to join my horde. The horde went into a huddle. There was an occasional, What? in the hoarse, whispered interchange. Then Cohen turned round. Seas of blood, wasn't it? he said. Um, yes, said the taxman. The huddle resumed. After some further exchanges, Truckle's head poked up. Did you say mountain of skulls? he said. Yes, yes, I think that's what I said, said the taxman. He glanced nervously at Rincewind and Mr Savaloy, who shrugged. Whisper, whisper, what? Excuse me? Yes? About how big a mountain? Skulls don't pile up that well. I don't know how big a mountain. A lot of skulls. Just checking. The horde seemed to reach a decision. They turned to face the other men. We're going to fight, said Cohen. Yes, you should have said all that about skulls and blood before, said Truckle. We'll show you whether we're dead or not, cackled Hamish. Mr Savaloy shook his head. I think you must have misheard. The odds are a hundred thousand to one, he said. I reckon that'll show people we're still alive, said Caleb. 
Yes, but the whole point of my plan was to show you that you could get to the top of the pyramid without having to fight your way up, said Mr. Savaloy. It really is possible in such a stale society. But if you try to fight hundreds of thousands of men, you'll die. And then, to his surprise, he found himself adding, probably. The horde grinned at him. Big odds don't frighten us, said Truckle. We like big odds, said Caleb. You see, Teach, odds of a thousand to one ain't a lot worse than ten to one, said Cohen. The reason being, he counted on his fingers, one, your basic soldier who's fighting for pay rather than his life ain't going to stick his neck out when there's all these other blokes around who might as well do the business, and two, not very many of them are going to be able to get near us at one time and then all be pushing and shoving, and... He looked at his fingers with an expression of terminal calculation. Um, three, said Mr. Savaloy, hypnotised by his logic. Three, right, half the time, when they swing their swords, they'll hit one of their mates, saving us a bit of effort, see? But even if that were true, it'd only work for a little while, Mr. Savaloy protested. Even if you killed as many as 200, you'd be tired, and there'd be fresh troops attacking you. Oh, they'll be tired too said Cohen cheerfully. Why? Because by then, to get to us, they'd have had to be running uphill. That's logic, that is, said Truckle approvingly. Cohen slapped the shaken teacher on the back. Don't you worry about a thing, he said. If we've got the empire by your kind of plan, we'll keep it by our kind of plan. You've shown us civilization, so we'll show you barbarism. He walked a few steps and then turned, an evil glint in his eye. Barbarism? Ha! When we kill people, we'd do it there and then, looking them in the eye, and we'd be happy to buy them a drink in the next world. No harm done. I never knew a barbarian who cut up people slowly in little rooms or tortured women to make them look pretty or put poison in people's grub. Civilization? If that's civilization, you can shove it where the sun don't shine. What? He said, shove it where the sun doesn't shine, Hamish. Ah! I've been there. But there is more to civilization than that, said Mr. Savaloy. There's music and, and literature and the concept of justice and the ideals of... The bamboo doors slid aside. As one man, joints creaking, the horde turned with weapons raised. The men in the doorway were taller and much more richly dressed than the peasants, and they moved in the manner of people who are used to there being no one in the way. Ahead of them, though was a trembling peasant holding a red flag on a stick. He was prodded into the room at sword point. Red flag? whispered Cohen. It means they want to parley, said six beneficent winds. You know, it's like our white flag of surrender, said Mr. Savaloy. Never heard of it, said Cohen. It means you mustn't kill anyone until they're ready. Mr. Savaloy tried to shut out the whispers behind him. Why don't we just invite them to dinner and massacre them all when they're drunk? You heard the man. The 700,000 of them. Ah, so it did have to be something simple with pasta then. A couple of the lords strode into the middle of the room. Cohen and Mr Savaloy went to meet them. And you too, said Cohen, grabbing Rincewind as he tried to back away. You're a weaselly man with words in a tight spot, so come on. Lord Hong regarded them with the expression of a man whose ancestry had bequeathed to him the ability to look down on everything. My name is Lord Hong. I am the Emperor's Grand Vizier. I order you to quit these premises immediately and submit to judgment. Mr. Savaloy turned to Cohen. I ain't gonna, said Cohen. Mr. Savaloy tried to think. Um, um uh, how shall I phrase this? Um, Genghis Cohen, leader of the Silver Horde, presents his compliments to the Lord Hong, but... Tell him it can stuff it, said Cohen. I think, Lord Hong, that perhaps you may have perceived the general flow of opinion here, said Mr. Savaloy. Where are the rest of your barbarians, peasant? he demanded.
Rincewind watched Mr. Savaloy. The old teacher seemed at a loss for words this time. The wizard wanted to run away, but Cohen had been right. Mad as it sounded, it was probably safer to be near him. Running away would put him closer, sooner or later, to Lord Hong. Who believed that there were other barbarians somewhere. I tell you this, and this only, said Lord Hong. If you quit the Forbidden City now, your deaths, at least, will be quick. And then your heads and significant parts will be paraded through the cities of the Empire, so that people will know of the terrible punishment. Punishment? said Mr. Savaloy. For killing the Emperor. We ain't killed no Emperor, said Cohen. I've got nothing against killing Emperors, but we ain't killed one. He was killed in his bed an hour ago, said Lord Hong. Not by us, said Mr. Savaloy. By you, said Rincewind. Only it's against the rules to kill the Emperor, so you wanted it to look as though the Red Army did it. Lord Hong looked at him as if seeing him for the first time, and less than happy about doing so. In the circumstances, said Lord Hong, I doubt that anyone will believe you. What will happen if we yield now, said Mr. Savaloy? I like to know these things. Then you will die very slowly in interesting ways. That's the saga of my life, said Cohen. I've always been dying very slowly in interesting ways. What's it to be? Street fighting? House to house? Free for all? Or what? In the real world, said one of the other lords, we battle. We do not scuffle like barbarians. Our armies will meet on the plain before the city. Before the city what? He means in front of the city, Cohen. Ah, oh. Civilised talk again. When? Dawn tomorrow. OK, said Cohen. It will give us an appetite for our breakfast. Anything else we can do for you? How big is your army, barbarian? You would not believe how big, said Cohen, which was probably true. We have overrun countries. We have wiped whole cities off the map. Where my army passes, nothing grows. That's true, at least, said Mr. Savaloy. We have not heard of you, said the warlord. Yeah, said Cohen. That's how good we are. There is one other thing about his army, actually, said someone. They all turned to Rincewind, who'd been almost as surprised as they were to hear his voice. But a train of thought had just reached the terminus. Yes? You may have been wondering why you have only seen the... Generals, Rincewind went on slowly, as if working it out as he went along. That is because, you see, the men themselves are... invisible. Yes, ghosts, in fact. Everyone knows this, don't they? Cohen gaped at him in astonishment. Blood-sucking ghosts, as a matter of fact, said Rincewind. After all, everyone knows that's what you get beyond the wall, don't they? Lord Hong sneered. But the warlords stared at Rincewind with the expressions of people who strongly suspected that the people beyond the wall were flesh and blood, but who also relied on millions of people not believing that this was so. Ridiculous. You are not invisible blood-sucking ghosts, said one of them. Cohen opened his mouth so that the diamond teeth glinted. He's right, he said. Fact is, we are the visible sort. Ha! A pathetic attempt said Lord Hong. Ghosts or no ghosts, we will beat you. Well, that went better than I expected, Mr. Savaloy remarked as the warlords strode out. Was that an attempt at a little bit of psychological warfare there, Mr. Rincewind? Is that what it was? I know about that kind of stuff, said Cohen. It's where you bang your shield all night before the fight so the enemy can't get any sleep and you sing... We're going to cut your tonkers off, and stuff like that. Similar, said Mr. Savaloy diplomatically. But it failed to work, I'm afraid. Lord Hong and his generals are rather too sophisticated. It's a great shame you couldn't try it on the common soldiers. There was a faint squeak of rabbit behind them. 
they turned and looked at the somewhat underage cadre of the Red Army that was being ushered in. Butterfly was with them. She even gave Rincewind a very faint smile. Rincewind had always relied on running away, but sometimes perhaps you had to stand and fight, if only because there was nowhere left to run. But he was no good at all with weapons, at least the normal sort. Um, he said, if we leave the palace now, we'll be killed, right? I doubt it, said Mr Savaloy. It's become a matter of the art of war now. Someone like Hong would probably slit our throats, but now war is declared. Uh, things have to be done according to custom. Rincewind took a deep breath. It's a million to one chance, he said, but it might just work. The four horsemen whose ride presages the end of the world are known to be death, war, famine and pestilence. But even less significant events have their own horsemen. For example, the four horsemen of the common cold are sniffles, chesty, nostril and lack of tissues. The four horsemen whose appearance foreshadows any public holiday are storm, gales, sleet and contraflow. Among the armies encamped in the broad alluvial plain around Hung Hung, the invisible horsemen known as misinformation, rumour and gossip saddled up. A large army encamped has all the tedious problems of a city without any of the advantages. Its watchfires and picket lines are, after a while, open to local civilians, especially if they have anything to sell, and even more so if they are women whose virtue has a certain commercial element, and even sometimes if they appear to be selling food which is a break from the monotonous army diet. The food currently on sale was certainly such a break. Pork balls! Pork balls! Get them while they... There was a pause as the vendor mentally tried out ways of ending the sentence and gave up. Pork balls! On a stick! How about you, Shogun? You look like... Here, aren't you the... Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up! Rincewind pulled D.M.H. Dybala into the shadows by a tent. The trader looked at the anguished face framed between a eunuch outfit and a big straw hat. It's the wizard, isn't it? How are you? You know how you seriously wanted to become very rich in international trade, Rincewind said. Yes, can we start? Soon, soon, but there's something you must do. You know this rumour about the army of invisible vampire ghosts that's heading this way? DMH Dybala's eyes swivelled nervously, but it was part of his stock in trade never to appear to be ignorant of anything except, perhaps, how to give correct change. Yes, he said. The one about there being millions of them, said Rincewind, and very hungry on account of not having eaten on the way, and made specially fierce by the great wizard. Um, yes. Well... It's not true. It's not? You don't believe me? After all, I ought to know. Good point. And we don't want people to panic, do we? Very bad for business, panic, said DMH, nodding uncomfortably. So make sure you tell people there's no truth in this rumour, will you? Set their minds at rest. Good idea. Uh, these invisible vampire ghosts, do they carry money of any sort? No, because they don't exist. Ah, yes, I forgot. And there are not two million three hundred thousand and nine of them, said Rincewind. He was rather proud of this little detail. Not two million three hundred thousand and nine of them, said DMH, a little glassy-eyed. Absolutely not. There are not two million three hundred thousand and nine of them, no matter what anyone says, nor has the great wizard made them twice as big as normal. Good man. Now, I'd better be off. Rincewind hurried away. The trader stood in thought for a while. It stole over him that he'd probably sold enough things for now, and he might as well go home and spend a quiet night in a barrel in the root cellar with a sack over his head. His route led him through quite a large part of the camp. He made sure that soldiers he met knew there was no truth in the rumour, even though this invariably meant that, first of all, he had to tell them what the rumour actually was. A toy rabbit squeaked nervously. And I'm afraid of the big invisible vampire ghosts, sobbed Favourite Pearl. The soldiers around this particular campfire tried to comfort her, but unfortunately there was no one to comfort them. And I heard they already ate some men. One or two soldiers looked over their shoulders. There was nothing to be seen in the darkness. 
This wasn't, however, a reassuring sign. The Red Army moved obliquely from campfire to campfire. Rincewind had been very specific. He'd spent all his adult life, at least those parts of it where he wasn't being chased by things with more legs than teeth, in Unseen University, and he felt he knew what he was talking about here. Don't tell people anything, he said. Don't tell them. You didn't get to survive as a wizard in UU by believing what people told you. You believed what you were not told. Don't tell them. Ask them. Ask them if it's true. You can beg them to tell you it's not true, or you can even tell them you've been told to tell them it's not true, and that is the best of all. Because Rincewind knew very well that when the four rather small and nasty horsemen of panic ride out, there is a good job done by misinformation, rumour and gossip, but they are as nothing compared to the fourth horseman, whose name is Denial. After an hour, Rincewind felt quite unnecessary. There were conversations breaking out everywhere, particularly in those areas on the edge of the camps, where the night stretched away so big and dark and so very obviously empty. All right, so how come they're saying there's not two million three hundred thousand and nine of them, eh? If there's none of them, then why is there a number? Look, there's no such thing as invisible vampire ghosts, all right? Oh, yeah? How do you know? Have you ever seen any? Listen, I went and asked the captain and he says he's certain there's no invisible ghosts out there. How can he be certain if he can't see them? He says there's no such thing as invisible vampire ghosts at all. Oh? How come he's saying that all of a sudden? My grandfather told me there's millions of them outside the... Hold on. Hold on. What's out there? What? Could have sworn I heard something. I can't see anything. Oh, no. Things must have filtered through to the high command, because getting on towards midnight, trumpets were sounded around the camps and a special proclamation was read out. It confirmed the reality of vampire ghosts in general, but denied their existence in any specific here-and-now sense. It was a masterpiece of its type, particularly since it brought the whole subject to the ears of soldiers the Red Army hadn't been able to reach yet. An hour later, the situation had reached the point of criticality, and Rincewind was hearing things he personally hadn't made up, and, on the whole, would much rather not hear. He'd chat with a couple of soldiers and say, I'm sure there's no huge hungry army of vampire ghosts, and get told, No, there's seven old men. Just seven old men? I've heard they're very old, said a soldier. Like too old to die. I heard from someone at the palace that they can walk through walls and make themselves invisible. Oh, come on, said Rincewind. Seven old men fighting this whole army. Makes you think, eh? Corporal Toshi says the great wizard is helping them. Stands to reason. I wouldn't be fighting a whole army if I didn't have a lot of magic on my side. Um, anyone know what this great wizard looks like? said Rincewind. They say he's taller than a house and got three heads. Rincewind nodded encouragingly. I heard, said a soldier, that the Red Army is going to fight on their side too. So what? Corporal Toshi says they're just a bunch of kids. No, I heard the real Red Army, you know. The Red Army ain't going to side with the barbarian invaders. Anyway, there's no such thing as the Red Army, they're just a myth. Like the invisible vampire ghosts, said Rincewind, giving the clockwork of anxiety another little turn. Er, uh, yeah. He left them arguing. No one was deserting. Running off into a night full of non-specific terrors was worse than staying in camp. But that was all to the good, he decided. It meant that the really frightened people were staying put and seeking reassurance from their comrades. And there was nothing like someone repeating, I'm sure there's no vampire wizards, and going to the latrine four times an hour to put backbone into a platoon. Rincewind crept back towards the city, round a tent in the shadows, and collided with a horse, which trod heavily on his foot. Your wife is a big hippo! Sorry! Rincewind froze, both hands clutching his aching foot. He knew only one person with a voice like a cemetery in midwinter. He tried to hop backwards and collided with another horse. Rincewind, isn't it? said Death. Yes. Good evening. I don't believe you have met war. Rincewind, war. War, Rincewind. War touched his helmet in salute. Pleasure's all mine, he said. He indicated the other three riders. Like to introduce you to my sons, Terror and Panic, and my daughter, Clancy. The children chorused a hello. 
Clancy was scowling, looking about seven years old, and was wearing a hard hat and a pony club badge. I wasn't expecting to see you here, Rincewind. Oh, good. Death pulled an hourglass out of his robe, held it up to the moonlight and sighed. Rincewind craned to see how much sand was left. However, I could... Don't you make any special arrangement just on my account, said Rincewind hurriedly. I, um, I expect you're all here for the battle? Yes, it promises to be extremely short. Who's going to win? Now you know I wouldn't tell you that even if I knew. Even if you knew, said Rincewind, I thought you were supposed to know everything. Death held up a finger. Something fluttered down through the night. Rincewind thought it was a moth, although it looked less fluffy and had a strange speckled pattern on its wings. It settled on the extended digit for a moment, and then flew up and away again. On a night like this, said Death, the only certain thing is uncertainty. Trite, I know, but true. Somewhere on the horizon, thunder rumbled. I'll, um, just be sort of going then, said Rincewind. Don't be a stranger, said Death, as the wizard hurried off. Odd person, said War. With him here, even uncertainty is uncertain. And I'm not sure even about that. War pulled a large paper-wrapped package out of his saddlebag. We've got, let's see now, egg and cress, chicken ticker, and mature cheese with crunchy pickle, I think. They do such marvellous things with sandwiches these days. Oh, and bacon surprise. Really? What is so surprising about bacon? I don't know. I suppose it comes as something of a shock to the pig. Ridcully had been having a long wrestle with himself and had won. We're um, going to bring him back, he said. It's been four days, and then we can send them back their bloody tube thing. It gives me the, the willies. The senior wizards looked at one another. No one was very keen on a university with a rinse-wind component, but the metal dog did give them the willies. No one had wanted to go near it. They'd piled some tables around it and tried to pretend it wasn't there. All right, said the dean, but Stibbons kept going on about things weighing the same, right? If we send that back, won't it mean Rincewind arrives here going very fast? Mr Stibbons says he, he's working on the spell, said Ridcully. Or we could pile some mattresses up at one end of the hall or, or, or something. The bursar raised a hand. Yes, bursar, said Ridcully encouragingly. Oh, landlord, a pint of your finest ale, said the bursar. Uh, good, said Ridcully. That's um, settled then. I've already told Mr Stibbons to start looking. On that demonic device? Yes. Then nothing can possibly go wrong, said the dean sourly. A trumpet of lobsters, if you'd be so good. And the bursar agrees. The warlords had gathered in Lord Hong's chambers. They carefully kept a distance from one another, as befitted enemies who were in the most shaky of alliances. Once the barbarians were dealt with, the battle might still continue, but they wanted assurance on one particular point. No, said Lord Hong. Let me make this absolutely clear. There is no invisible army of blood-sucking ghosts, do you understand? The people beyond the wall are just like us, except vastly inferior in every respect, of course, but totally visible. One or two of the lords did not look convinced. And all this talk about the Red Army, said one of them. The Red Army, Lord Tang, is an undisciplined rabble that shall be put down with resolute force. You know what the Red Army and the peasants are talking about, said Lord Tang. They say that thousands of years ago, it... They say that thousands of years ago, a wizard who did not exist took mud and lightning and made soldiers that couldn't die, said Lord Hong. Yes, it's a story, Lord Tang. A story made up by peasants who did not understand what really happened. One Sun Mirror's army just had... Lord Hong waved a hand vaguely. 
Better armor, better discipline. I'm not frightened of ghosts, and I'm certainly not afraid of a legend that probably never existed. Yes, but soothsayer, snapped Lord Hong. The soothsayer, who hadn't been expecting it, gave a start. Yes, my lord. How are those entrails coming along? Uh, they're, um, they're, they're about ready, my lord, said the soothsayer. The soothsayer was rather worried. This must have been the wrong kind of bird, he told himself. About the only thing the entrails were telling him was that if he got out of this alive, he, the soothsayer, might be lucky enough to enjoy a nice chicken dinner. But Lord Hong sounded like a man with the most dangerous kind of impatience. And what do they tell you? Um, the, the, the future is, um, the, the, the future is... Chicken entrails had never looked like this. For a moment he thought they were moving. Uh, it is, it is uncertain, he hazarded. Be certain, said Lord Hong. Who will win in the morning? Shadows flickered across the table. Something was fluttering around the light. It looked like an undistinguished yellow moth with black patterns on its wings. The soothsayer's precognitive abilities, which were considerably more powerful than he believed, told him, This is not a good time to be a clairvoyant. On the other hand, there was never a good time to be horribly executed, so, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, he said, the enemy will be most emphatically beaten. How can you be so certain? said Lord McSweeney. The soothsayer bridled. Um, well, you, you see this wobbly bit near the kidneys? Um, you, you want to argue with this green trickly thing? You know all about liver suddenly, all right? So, there you are, said Lord Hong. Fate smiles upon us. Even so, Lord Tang began, the men are very... You can tell the men, Lord Hong began. He stopped. He smiled. You can tell the men, he said, that there is a huge army of invisible vampire ghosts. What? Yes, Lord Hong began to stride up and down, snapping his fingers. Yes, there is a terrible army of foreign ghosts, and this has so enraged our own ghosts. Yes, a thousand generations of our ancestors are riding on the wind to repel this barbaric invasion. The ghosts of the Empire are arising. Millions and millions of them. Even our demons are furious at this intrusion. They will descend like a mist of claws and teeth to... Yes, Lord Sung? The warlords were looking at one another nervously. Are you sure, Lord Hong? Lord Hong's eyes gleamed behind his tiny spectacles. Make the necessary proclamations, he said. But only a few hours ago we told the men there were no... Tell them differently. But will they believe that they... They will believe what they are told, shouted Lord Hong. If the enemy thinks his strength lies in deceit, then we will use their deceit against them. Tell the men that behind them will be a billion ghosts of the Empire. The other warlords tried to avoid his gaze. No one was actually going to suggest that your average soldier would not be totally happy with ghosts front and rear, especially given the capriciousness of ghosts. Good, said Lord Hong. He looked down. Are you still here? Uh, just, just uh, clearing up my, my, my giblets, my lord, squealed the soothsayer. He picked up the remains of his stricken chicken and ran for it. After all, he told himself as he pelted back home, it's not as though I said, whose enemy? Lord Hong was left alone. He realised he was shaking. It was probably fury, but perhaps... Perhaps things could be turned to his advantage even so. Barbarians came from outside, and to most people everywhere, outside was the same. Yes, the barbarians were a minute detail, easily disposed of, but carefully managed perhaps might figure in his overall strategy. He was breathing heavily too. He walked into his private study and shut the door. He pulled out the key. He opened the box. 
there was a few minutes' silence, except for the rustle of cloth. Then Lord Hong looked at himself in the mirror. He'd gone to great lengths to achieve this. He had used several agents, none of whom knew the whole plan, but the Ankh Morpork tailor had been good at his work, and the measurements had been followed exactly. From pointy boots to hose to doublet, cloak and hat with a feather in it, Lord Hong knew he was a perfect Ankh Morpork gentleman. The cloak was lined with silk. The clothes felt uncomfortable and touched him in unfamiliar ways, but those were minor details. This was how a man looked in a society that breathed, that moved, that could go somewhere. He'd walk through the city on that first great day, and the people would be silent when they saw their natural leader. It never crossed his mind that anyone would say, Yeah, what a tough, eave off a brick at him. The ants scurried. The thing that went parp went parp. The wizards stood back. There wasn't much else to do when Hex was working at full speed, except watch the fish and oil the wheels from time to time. There were occasional flashes of octarine from the tubes. Hex was spelling several hundred times a minute. It was as simple as that. It would take a human more than an hour to do an ordinary finding spell, but Hex could do them faster, over and over again. It was netting the whole occult sea in the search of one slippery fish. It achieved, after 93 minutes, what would otherwise have taken the faculty several months. "'You see?' said Ponder, his voice shaking a little as he took the line of blocks out of the hopper. "'I said he could do it.' Uh, "'Who's he?' said Ridcully. "'Hex. Oh, you mean it? That's what I said, sir. Uh, yes.' Another thing about the Horde, Mr. Savaloy had noticed, was their ability to relax. The old men had the cat-like ability to do nothing when there was nothing to do. They'd sharpened their swords, they'd had a meal, big lumps of meat for most of them, and some kind of gruel for Mad Hamish, who dribbled most of it down his beard, and assured its wholesomeness by dragging the cook in, nailing him to the floor by his apron, and suspending a large axe on a rope that crossed a beam in the roof and was held at the other end by Cohen while he ate. Then they sharpened their swords again, out of habit, and stopped. Occasionally one of them would whistle a snatch of a tune through what remained of his teeth, or search a bodily crevice for a particularly fretful louse. Mainly, though, they just sat and stared at nothing. After a long while, Caleb said, You know, I've never been to XXXX. Been everywhere else. Often wondered what it's like. Got shipwrecked there once, said Vincent. Weird place. Lousy with magic. There's beavers with beaks and giant rats with long tails that hops around the place and boxes with one another. Blackfellas wandering round all over the place. They say they're in a dream. Bright, though. Show them a bit of desert with one dead tree in it. Next minute they've found a three-course meal with fruits and nuts to follow. Beer's good, too. Sounds like it. There was another long pause. Then, I suppose they've got minstrels here. Be a bit of a bloody waste, wouldn't it, if we all got killed and no one made up any songs about it? Bound to have loads of minstrels, a city like this. No problem there, then? No. No. There was another lengthy pause. Not that we're going to get killed. Right. I don't intend to start getting killed at my time of life. <laughs> Another pause. Cohen? Yep. You a religious man at all? Well, I've robbed lots of temples and killed a few mad priests in my time. Don't know if that counts. What do your tribe believe happens to you when you die in battle? Oh, these big fat women in horned helmets take you off to the halls of Eo, where there is fighting and carousing and quaffing forever. Another pause. You mean like, really, forever? Suppose so. Because generally you get fed up even with turkey by about day four. All right. What do you lot believe? I think we go off to hell in a boat made of toenail clippings. Something like that, anyway. Another long pause. 
But it's not worth talking about because we're not going to get killed today. You said it. Uh, it's not worth dying if all you've got to look forward to is leftover meat and floating around in a boat smelling of your socks, is it, eh? <laughs> Another pause. Down in Clatch, they believe if you lead a good life, you're rewarded by being sent to a paradise with lots of young women. That's your reward, is it? Dunno. Maybe it's their punishment. But I do remember you eat sherbet all day. Oh, when I was a lad, we had proper sherbet in them little tube things and a licorice straw to suck it up with. You don't get that sort of thing today. People are too busy rushing about. Sounds a lot better than quaffing toenails, though. Another pause. Did you ever believe that business about every enemy you killed becoming your servant in the next world? Dunno. How many you killed? What? Oh, maybe two, three thousand, not counting dwarfs and trolls, of course. Definitely not going to be short of a hairbrush or someone to open doors for you after you're dead, then. A pause. We're definitely not going to die, right? Right. I mean, odds of 100,000 to one. Huh. Difference is just a lot of zeros, right? Right. I mean, stout comrades at our side, a strong right arm. What more could we want? Pause. A volcano would be favourite. Pause. We're going to die, aren't we? Yep. End of CD 7